0: (laughs) Welcome to 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I am your long-suffering host, Dante Stack. We are on question 39, wait for it, A, 39A. Yes, we're doing something different this week. It's sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure type of week. So for the first time, we're releasing two episodes in a week. And if you're new to this podcast, what we do here is we talk about a spiritual question nine times out of ten, a specific passage from the Bible, and we overanalyze it, and then we leave you hanging. We don't answer that question. But I'm the type of guy that likes change, likes to mix things up. So this week, we're giving you two different versions of the same question. That question is, can heaven be tortured out of us? But, instead of not answering that question at all, in today's question, question 39A, we are going to answer that question one way. And then on Friday, we're going to come back with question 39B, And answer that question the other way. All right, makes sense, everybody? Let's get into it. Here we go. (laughs) On February fifth, 1597, in the area around Nagasaki, Japan, 26 people were nailed to a cross, stabbed in the chest or abdomen, and then hung there until they died. This was one of the early parts of a radical persecution of Christianity that took place in Japan. And this persecution started pretty much on that day, or in the decades or so before that day in 1597, and continued until the 1850s. Christianity was just pummeled by this persecution for hundreds and hundreds of years in Japan. Now, I've been a person that for a long time has been fascinated by Fox's Book of Martyrs. Now, that's not a book of martyred foxes. That's a man named Fox who wrote a history, a biography of all these people that were martyred for the faith, martyred for Christianity and you flip through it and it's hundreds of stories and it breaks your heart but at the same time it wows you and it makes you just want to emulate these people. It makes you want to have the faith that these desperate crazy zealots of the faith had. You know they have faith as their skin is being boiled off of them. They have faith as their loved ones are being tortured in front of them. Oftentimes men's wives are being raped in front of them and they're getting their eyeballs pulled out and they're being filleted alive or eaten By animals, or every sort of perverse, sadistic type of thing that you can imagine, it's already been done. The famous Saint Boethius, just an incredible guy, philosophy writer, he has a device put on his head that just slowly applies more pressure and pressure to his skull until his head like explodes from the pressure. And they just do it one turn of the screw at a time. Just mounting pressure after pressure after pressure. And the poor guy had months before this moment of torture took place, where he just sat pretty much in a cell awaiting the day of his torture and death. But you read this, and aside from the disgust, you're also filled with this, I don't know, holy reverence, or this desire to live up to the past history. And I've always had this personal conviction that where the church is persecuted, there the gospel thrives. Even in America, where I've lived and grown up, when it looks like, you know, conservative Christianity is being marginalized, or or Christmas is being warred upon, you know, the war on Christmas. Sometimes you hear about in conservative Christian circles, Fox News circles. I've always taken that and thought, you know, good, actually. If this pseudo-war actually comes to the place where there is active persecution of true belief, true faith then you're going to have all these crazy cool stories and you're going to see true believers shine through. And the gospel is going to spread like wildfire. Because in my mind, you know, I look at how the early church grew and there was horrible persecution in the first two to three hundred years of Christianity. And yet that's its birthplace. Christianity somehow takes root under the Roman Empire that was dead set against it. That's been my inner belief system is that When Christians are persecuted, there's going to be a renaissance, there's going to be a ballooning of faith, and there's going to be more believers out there because of it. But I started this episode talking about this martyrdom and persecution in Japan because today, Christianity in Japan is less than 1%. According to recent studies, there's less than 300,000 Protestant Christians in Japan. So that information flies in the face of my internal belief system, right? That where there's persecution, there will be a growth of faith. Well, then Japan should be amongst the most faithful countries on Earth, right? According to my logic. But that's not so. And I was turned on to this whole idea. The question, again, for this episode is, can heaven be tortured out of us? I was turned on to this question because of a recent historical fiction book I read. Apparently it's very famous, and Martin Scorsese's adapting it to be a feature film, I think coming out next year, 2016. So when I heard about this, I was pretty intrigued to read it. And it chronicles, you know, a historical fiction outlook of these Portuguese Christians coming and trying to be missionaries in Japan in the 17th century. And just being, you know, wiped out and tortured every which way but loose. And it's a hellish book to read. It's just pages after pages after pages of torture and psychological torment. And it's brutal through and through. But the plotline kind of revolves around this idea of the Japanese authorities are going to these priests and going to the followers of Jesus and trying to get them to renounce their faith and torturing them subsequently to get those renunciations out of them. And when you read of what these people endure to maintain outwardly an expression of belief in Jesus Christ, it's incomprehensible. And you wonder why? Why go through all that misery? And maybe, I think, it has its roots in this verse here in Matthew. This is Matthew 12, kind of in the the middle of the gospel. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So the idea springs forth from this passage that there's some sort of one sin to rule them all. You can do any amount of sin and God will forgive it to you unless you do this one specific sin, unless you blaspheme the spirit. That is the unforgivable sin. So that's clearly strong language. Whatever you do, you don't want to blaspheme the spirit. However, at least in that context, Jesus isn't clear on what actually blaspheming the spirit is. However, earlier in Matthew, we have this passage. This is Jesus speaking again. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that they will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Wow. Powerful language. Jesus says pretty straight up, if you deny me here in front of other men, I'm going to deny you. And we know that Jesus has also proclaimed many times over in the gospels that he is the way to eternal life. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him whoever believes in Jesus shall inherit eternal life. But it appears here from passages like this that Jesus is saying belief, faith that equals an external proclamation. You have to acknowledge me in front of other men. And if you don't do that, if you renounce me in front of other men, I'm going to renounce you in front of the Father. So I don't think it's a leap of faith or jumping to conclusions to say that it sounds like blaspheming the spirit could be this denying Jesus or denying or denying Christ in front of men. When reading this historical fiction book, it's called Silence by Xuxaco Endo. I'm not sure how to pronounce his first name. Well, let's say Mr. Endo. The thing that makes the main character, this priest from Portugal... What makes him finally recant his faith, what makes him renounce in front of the Japanese officials is not the torture that he endures, but hearing other regular Japanese peasants, people that he has led to be Christians, hearing those moans from those people, hearing the tortures from those poor peasants, you know, because he feels the burden of responsibility for that. And it seems that it's out of love that he eventually recants. You know, the Japanese even say, if you recant, we'll stop torturing these other people. What a Sophie's choice right there. What a horrible catch 22. And so after reading this, I went to my wife and I said, okay, let's make a pact. If you're being tortured and the torturer says, all you have to do to stop this torture is recant your love for your husband. If you do that, I'll stop torturing you. I tell my wife, Do it. Do it in a heartbeat. Recount every moment you've ever loved me so that he can stop torturing you and then we can enjoy the rest of our lives together. Those words become meaningless when you look at the the scope of our lives and that this one moment, if you continue to, you know, hold to your word, you're going to be tortured to death and you won't have any more time left to love me. So why not recant it in that moment? Let the torture go away happy and then we can live on forever together happy. So we made this pact that if ever anyone decides to torture one of us, it's okay. We'll forgive the other one for recanting one's love. And I started wrestling with this thinking, why wouldn't God feel the same way, right? We so often in the Christian community say, it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not about a book per se, or it's not about laws. It's not about the things you have to do. It's about a relationship. Well, in my living and breathing wife, that relationship means more to me than simply saying the words, I love you, or I don't love you. So, of course, if she's in pain, I want that pain to end for her, and I would do anything, seemingly, to make that pain stop for her. So, why would God not feel the same way? If I'm being tortured, if someone's cutting off my fingers one by one, and every time I don't recant my confession of faith, every time I continue to proclaim that Jesus Christ is God, I'm going to lose another finger, and all I have to do is say, no, he's not, and... The fingers will stop being lobbed off. Why would my father, the God who loves me, why wouldn't he just wish for me to recant in that moment so that my pain stops? Certainly if I had a son. I don't have a son. If my dog was being tortured, I would tell the dog, yes, recant, dog. I know my dog cannot talk, but if in a world where my dog could talk, of course, I don't want my dog to lose her paws. Recant, dog, recant. And I started to talk myself into this. Okay, yeah, I do have a relationship with Jesus. Surely, it's okay. It's okay to recant. He doesn't mind. But then I also realized, yes, we say that word, relationship. But let's be frank. Our relationship with God is not the same as our relationship with other human beings. Obviously, if you're an atheist, you're definitely going to nod your head and agree with that statement. But as Christians, we can say that word relationship, but it's not its not physically the same. It's just not. It's different. And God so often in these conversations is silent. With my wife, I have so many opportunities to express love for her. So many different avenues to explore love with her. There's love in the bedroom. There's love with service. There's love by buying her flowers, taking her out to a nice restaurant. Just saying kind things to her. But with God, my options are limited. My words have to equal action. I think that's why James says, faith without works is dead. Well, maybe the way I express my love is that even in the point when that costs me everything, I endure. Here's Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Or how about Luke 14, starting in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple." For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with ten thousand to meet him who comes against him with twenty thousand? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I repeat, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In that hour when you're being tortured, you're renouncing your health, you're renouncing everything to retain salvation, to retain the hope that you have of eternal life. There's a quote I remember from Greg Kokel. Greg Kokel is one of the leaders of StandReason.org str.org, I believe. And they're an organization that focuses on apologetics of Christianity, refuting claims that try to poke holes in Christianity. And he wrote something, and this is just my paraphrase from memory, that his greatest fear was that he would be right about the wrath of God, right about the justice of God, but wrong about God's mercy. We see God in so much of the Bible that what the Lord seems to care most about is that his name is proclaimed throughout all the generations, throughout all the nations. Maybe my whole thought process of Christianity flourishes where there's persecution is still valid when the martyrs continue to proclaim God's name. In Revelation, there's a whole section talking about the martyrs in heaven and their place of honor. Maybe the reason there's less than 1% Christians in Japan today is because those Portuguese missionaries didn't hold firm, didn't stay the course, even under the worst tortures ever. Maybe heaven was tortured out of them. Or maybe heaven was tortured out of the Japanese people. You know, I hate to admit this because I want the answer to be simple. I want the answer to be, our God is love. Therefore, God will forgive us. God will stay with us in our time of great pain, our time of torment. When ISIS is torturing the thousands upon thousands of people in Syria, I want there to be grace and mercy and redemption for those people. But how did Islam even start? It started by the sword. It started by acts of vengeance and acts of violence. And that violence worked for whatever reason. So when I'm being tortured, I don't want to be among those people that recants Jesus and then ends up at heaven's gate and Jesus says, No, get away from me. I never knew you. You've recounted my name. Dante, you're out. I don't want to be among that number. Can heaven be tortured out of me? Yeah. This is Dante Stack. Signing out. Peace be the journey. Okay, just a reminder. This is a choose-your-own-adventure week. So clearly, you've just listened to the depressing answer of this question. Can in heaven be tortured out of us? So, hold your horses. Keep your ducks in a row. We're going to come back in a couple days. Or, if you're listening to this in the future, just click on the very next episode, Question 39B, where we're going to take the opposite stance on this issue. Fun, right? Emotionally trying, but fun. While I have your attention, don't forget. Like us on Facebook, write nice things about us on iTunes, or even mean things about us on iTunes. Just reach out. Reach out and touch us, man. Facebook.com slash 365 Honest Questions. You can write me anytime I try to answer every email I get from you. Uh, DanteStack at gmail.com. And of course, check out my love child, Solve the World, my fictional podcast. I work really hard to create a fun story that unfolds over 100 episodes. That's Solve the World. You can find that at DanteStack.com or iTunes or Stitcher or pretty much on any of your podcatchers. Okay, see you later, guys.